This week on Finding Health, how you can help science better understand the coronavirus. Welcome to Finding Health. I'm Brandon. Let's get some answers together. As states start to reopen, we're facing some uncertain times. Scientists are moving as fast as they can to learn more about the coronavirus and to learn how to beat it. This week, we're talking to Duke University's Dr. Jessie Lynn Dunn. Her lab is working on understanding the coronavirus as well, but from a different approach, using your Fitbit or Apple Watch to screen you for COVID-19. Uh, sure. Um, my name is Jessie Lynn Dunn. I'm an assistant professor at Duke in the departments of biomedical engineering and biostatistics and bioinformatics. Um, my lab is the Big Ideas Lab, um, which actually stands for something. It's the Biomedical Informatics Group, and we are integrating data engineering and analytics. Um, and the name really describes what we do. We work a lot with biomedical data from a variety of different sources. Um, one of the major ones we're dealing with these days is wearable devices. And I think in this episode, we're gonna be talking specifically about the wearable devices analysis as applied to COVID-19 research. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the, the uh, hope. And I'm curious, uh, what made you connect the dots, uh, or can you connect the dots for, for us between wearable devices and COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, using wearable devices to detect infectious disease is not new for my group. Um, so we've done quite a bit of work in this area for other types of infections. Um, in using wearable devices to be able to learn signatures of infections and ideally be able to detect differences between different types of 19 came around, you know, for us, it was kind of natural to say, well, we've been developing this technology to be able to de detect infections and why not apply it to COVID-19? So that's what we did, um, and that's what we've been working on until today. Well, I'm I'm really glad that you've been uh, you have some experience uh, using wearable devices to track infectious diseases because I think a lot of Americans didn't know that was a thing until just a few months ago. So <laughs> I'm glad you've had some experience. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right, and you know, for us, it, it it feels like the obvious next step. But I think it makes sense that for a lot of people who wearables isn't on the forefront of their mind, um, it seems like you know a, a bigger leap than I think it seemed like to us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now it's really come to the forefront, uh, which kind of brings me to my next question. So uh, China, for example, has an app that you can now uh, scan QR codes uh, as you enter different facilities and, and, and they're using that to help track the spread of COVID-19. Um, mm -hmm. And that's made the news a lot. So now that people are starting to become aware of how uh, technology can potentially help track or monitor the spread. Um, how, how is your program at Duke different than something like uh, China, for example, might be doing? Yeah, and so I want to emphasize that our study is not using contact tracing. So we're actually, when I say wearables, um, you know, really what we're looking at is physiologic signatures. So measurements of heart rate and step count. And um, 
changes in those parameters that indicate that somebody's sick. So it's really quite different in that we're not looking at where people are or who they come into contact with, but we're really looking at how the body changes and how people's behaviors change when they get sick and whether we can use that to predict if somebody that we don't know whether or not they're sick has COVID-19. So specifically, you're, you're looking at uh, something like an Apple Watch might collect being heart rhythm, uh, maybe steps, uh, maybe fall detection, things that would be you might get an alert for on your uh, iWatch. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what are you doing with that data? How do you begin to take all those data points? I know we talked about this a little bit the last time we spoke, but all those tons of data points that you might get from a device that someone's wearing 12 to 24 hours a day, um, what kind of, I mean, that's, that seems like a ton of, of information to kind of go through and find patterns. It is. Um, and so the, the field that we're in is a pretty new burgeoning field called digital biomarker discovery. And what we mean by a digital biomarker is that I think, I think most people are familiar with the traditional, um, I guess, idea of a biomarker, which is something that you can measure that indicates somebody's health status. So for example, you might think of a blood test where somebody measures how much sugar is in your blood, your blood glucose, and that is an indicator of whether or not somebody has diabetes. Um, And so it's really the same thing, but like you said, instead of taking a single measurement, we have this benefit that we can take many, many, many measurements in time. And so we have to develop methods to be able to handle all of that data to make a decision. And the interesting thing also about this is that decisions can change over time, right? With with the blood glucose example, if you only have somebody coming into the clinic once a year, then you only get one measurement per year and the decision can only be made one time per year. But we know that somebody could develop diabetes in a matter of months. So they might go undiagnosed for a long period of time. So the benefit that we have of this continuous data is that we can continuously make decisions from it and automate that process. So with a digital biomarker, what we do is we develop um, mathematical formulas or algorithms that take all of this data in together and produce some sort of prediction output. So is somebody likely to have COVID-19 or not based on this data? And we do that using a variety of different methods. Um, A lot of this is in statistical modeling and machine learning um, and essentially the various methods you can use to make predictions from data. So it sounds like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a, a much more of a mathematical way of diagnosing someone, not necessarily looking at symptoms uh, and, and how step counts or heart rate could really tell, you know, if you have the disease, but more so looking at the mathematical likelihood that if you have those, if, if your data says this, you might be positive. Exactly. And so one thing that I would also emphasize with this is that this technology is not at the point to be a diagnostic. So I would definitely not make a clinical decision to say you do or do not have COVID-19 based on your digital biomarker. But what we could do is say you're very likely to have COVID-19 and you should go and have a molecular diagnostic test. So it's sort of like a like an early warning system. 
Exactly. <laughs> so we, we like to think of it as like case finding or a screening system, but essentially we know that we can't test every person every day um, using the molecular diagnostic tests. We just don't have the infrastructure or the a sufficient number of tests to be able to do that. And so this gives us a way to intelligently choose who should be tested. So on the flip side of, of the coin, uh, will this, will this uh, kind of large block of information be able to help people know what the recovery looks like? Uh, you know, when they may be, their body may be showing uh, signs or, or enough mathematical data points that they might be recovered? Uh, or are you looking more so at the, the, the front end? Yeah, so so that is also the beauty of this sort of longitudinal monitoring data is that we have the ability to ask a lot of secondary questions of our data. And so that is precisely one of the things that we're looking at. Um, and it's, it's sort of a twofold question. One is, what does the typical illness trajectory look like? And since we know that some people tend to have really severe reactions, whereas other people tend to be mild or completely asymptomatic, can we predict whether or not somebody's going to have a severe reaction and need specialized care? And then, as you um, as you astutely found, um, the other question is, you know, when is somebody recovered? When are they no longer contagious? Because that's a really key question to getting folks back into the workforce. And so we're definitely looking at um, several secondary outcomes, like the question of disease trajectory and when somebody stops being contagious um, in our data as well. So I, I know uh, everyone in the world right now is rushing scientists, so it might be too soon to say, but have you seen any trends so far? Yeah, so this is a tough question. You know, this is, I would say, the fastest I've ever built a research study. Um, and I never thought that we would really need to build a research study this fast. So um, we are simultaneously building infrastructure and scaling infrastructure and trying to ask research questions. So I, I would not feel comfortable um, drawing any conclusions about the data just yet. Um, we're seeing in our data a lot of the things that we expected to see based on our previous studies. So, um, you know, it does feel like we are on the right path. Um, but again, you know, as a um, proper scientist and a statistician, it wouldn't be right for me to draw any conclusions without us really doing the robust analysis. So hopefully it's okay for me to leave it at that. I think that's totally fair. I think I think that the whole world's rushing scientists right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the data you collect. So what's your who's your data pool? I know it's a, a public sign up. Um, are you looking at demographics? Are you looking at various, uh, you know, other features? And who are you collecting this data from? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, we're getting that question quite a bit. So we've been working on putting together a blog post of our initial um, exploratory data analysis so that, you know, we can actually give people mm -hmm. the ability to see sort of in real time what the demographics of our study look like. Um, but, you know, we actually we have people enrolled from across the globe. Um, so we have the majority of individuals that are participating are in the U.S. So I'd say approximately 75 percent of study participants are in the U.S. Um, and then the rest of study participants really come from around the globe. 
And we have some large contingencies in Canada, um, in Germany, and Brazil. Um, so there's been some interesting pods of a, a large number of people signing up, oh, and also the UK. Um, and we're working on getting the study out in multiple different languages. So we hope to be able to expand upon that inter international component quite a bit. Um, in terms of the demographics in our study, you know, as of now, we have a bring your own device format, which is a little bit challenging because there's, of course, going to be some bias in the individual who would typically have a wearable device or have chosen to purchase a wearable device. So that does make this a bit challenging, and we've been very actively applying for funding, trying to um, identify some potential sources to allow us to buy devices to get a better representation of the typical um, US population or even the global population. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, even with our current uh, list of folks, because we have so many different devices that our platform can handle, we actually have seen a pretty good diversity in, for example, occupations. And um, so we have you know, a pretty good divide between people who had to work at home after stay-at-home orders were put out versus people who continued to work, such as people in the services industry or the healthcare industry or the travel industry. Um, and then we have a large, a large number of people from sort of various occupations and um, a number of people who are now retired or uh, disabled. And so patients of our demographics. So uh, you have uh, quite a few people enrolled then, but you're still looking for more. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the challenges with the machine learning models is that machine learning models are data hungry. Um, and what that essentially means is that, you know, the, the more data that we can collect and the more representative of the population where we're trying to make our predictions on, the better these models can do. So we're certainly continuing to enroll. Um, you know, we've we've done a pretty good job up until this point, but we feel strongly that we would like to, you know, get ten times more in our study in order to be able to really answer some of the harder questions. If you like our show and enjoy what we do, consider becoming a member of our family of supporters. For $25, you can help us continue to create the show. And as a nonprofit organization, your support is tax deductible. Visit www.reneecfrank.org to make a donation today. That's R-E-N-E-E-C-F-R-I-N-K.org to make a donation today. This week, I also wanted to talk about emails. We send a lot of emails. As a nonprofit, it's important for us to stay up to date with all our donors, volunteers, and subscribers. If you, like us, are looking for a great, affordable solution to managing your email marketing, check out Aweber. With over 700 customizable email templates, Aweber can help you take your email marketing to the next level. It's easy to use and easy to manage. They have hundreds of signup forms you can use to grow your email marketing lists. And best of all, they have mobile-friendly templates. Starting as low as $19 a month, let's make your email marketing easier. Sign up for a 30-day free trial at findinghealth.aweber.com. 
That's findinghealth.aweber.com. Let's get organized. things you touched on earlier when we talked a little bit about location uh what what was your decision making process and in not involving location data uh for example someone who is in the study who may be in a hot spot uh may be significantly more likely to contract uh the coronavirus regardless of of what the data says uh than somebody who maybe is has a lot more data points of of high activity or low activity that would be in a not hot spot um, how, how does that weigh in or does it not at all? Yeah, that's the, a great question. Um, we t- talked about this quite a bit because as we were designing the study, we realized that there were going to be a lot of challenges with privacy. And initially we had considered the contact tracing model um, in saying that, you know, with these wearable devices, one of the benefits is that we can get real time and consistent location data. But we wanted to give people the ability to be able to give us what we would call lower granularity data, so less detailed information about their location, but still detailed enough that we could identify whether or not somebody is in a hotspot. And so the way that we do that is we have an enrollment survey when people first sign up. And pretty much all of the questions in this enrollment survey are optional. But if people decide to, they can give us information um, about their address at two different levels. One is just the zip code level or the postal code level. And so that helps us to know if somebody is in a likely hotspot. And then we also give people the opportunity to tell us, actually, I made a mistake, we're at three levels. Um, Another level would be the street address so that we can actually directly tell whether somebody is, for example, in an apartment complex that may be having an outbreak or a nursing home that may be having an outbreak. And then the third level is the housing type. So people can choose to answer any one of these three questions or all three so that we would know if somebody is in a dormitory or a nursing home or a prison or um, a military barracks. And this gives us different levels of information about location that hopefully the study participants can feel comfortable with giving to the study team without worrying that their continuous location data could be, you know, um, released in a data breach or if the worst should happen, you know? Uh, it sounds, that sounds super interesting to me. I, I would love to have been in the room when those discussions were had because I would think, um, you know, it's a very fine line to walk to say, What's the most data we can ask people to give us without making them, without it being too much that they don't trust us? Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that coin, uh, you know, most people are sharing their location data with so many third party apps and advertising apps that it could be helpful just to have it anyway, uh, you know, but it's also a weird game, right? Where you, you have to have it seem like privacy is less of a concern, so more people will enroll. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would also say that, um, you know, as researchers, we want to make sure that whatever data we're collecting is necessary for the question at hand. 
Um, and so we always say that we try to collect the minimum amount of data that we need to be able to answer the research question. And so that really helped to contribute to that discussion of what should we be collecting from people. So uh, let's talk then about the actual data collection. Um, what when you once you collect the data, uh, how long are you storing it? Uh, what's the opt out process like if somebody does decide to want to opt out, and and what happens to that data afterwards? Yeah. So the way that our process works is that you know once if you opt into the study, we begin collecting the data. Um, if you decide to opt out. We basically stop collecting the data from the time that you would choose to opt out and no further data would be collected. The data that's already been collected, all of it is anonymized anyways. Um, and that data we keep in the system actually um, because it's, it, you know, it's fully de-identified and that is a part of our consent process is to let people know that any data that is collected as a part of the study is used in the analysis. Um, with that being said, we don't release any, uh, what we would call a personally identifiable information. All data that's analyzed is done in aggregate. Um, and I think you had one more question in there that I wanted to get to that I'm now forgetting. <laughs> well, I think I think you did a really good job of answering. It, was, it seems okay. like a win-win scenario. It's a win for science because uh, you guys get more data and potentially will be able to uh, use that data to determine uh, as a screener if someone should get tested for COVID-19 or not. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's a win for the consumer because it costs them nothing and they're be able to help the world at large without having to, you know, go in and get their blood drawn and, and go through a rigorous, uh, you know, kind of physical study. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. We hope so. <laughs> uh, well, it, so it sounds like a win. So uh, yeah. we don't know now how long the, the outbreak will last. Have you uh, thought about or talked about among your peers uh, where you would anticipate the study being in six months or a year? Yeah, that, so, so like I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this area isn't really new for us and that we've been using wearables to detect infections for a while. So the platform that we've developed as a part of this study has been essentially a scalable version of what we were doing previously. And we've had a lot of talk about, um, you know, where is COVID going? Do we expect the outbreak to continue and you know every week we're reevaluating our study um, in reality which is incredibly challenging but one of the things that we're thinking about is you know if a vaccine for covid came out tomorrow that would be incredible we would be thrilled and our study would still be really useful because we have other infectious diseases that we need to deal with on a daily basis, like influenza, for example. So we envision that this study will continue. And as of now, we're looking at both influenza and COVID-19. Um, and we know that there are some other seasonal viruses that um, are important to keep an eye on as well. So we definitely don't anticipate that this study will close down. Now, if we're in a world where there is not a vaccine, we do hope that our study will progress enough that we actually develop these digital biomarkers well enough such that they could be deployed. Um, and so the way that we might envision this is, you know, a great and relevant example is that at Duke University, we will have, um, the likelihood is we will have students coming back to campus in some way, shape or form. And if we want to have uh, monitoring of 
of those students in real time, this would be an opportunity for us to do that. And so we hope that we can move quickly enough that we can not only do our research, but also develop some translational tools that can be used to help out with the current pandemic. So uh, can you talk a little bit about those tools? Uh, what, what kind of tools would you be looking at? So uh, with students maybe on campus, or even if this were deployed on a statewide or, or national level um, as, a, as something people could use, uh, are we looking at like a, a push notification app that says, you know, hey, you've hit these biomarkers, it's time to go get tested? Yeah, so we have a couple different ways that we can think about it. Um, and, you know, it really depends on... on a whole lot of things, um, but essentially you could envision that it could be a completely closed loop system where it might actually send a testing kit to somebody's house. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that it, it could be implemented. Well, it sounds like you certainly got uh, the resources to do it at Duke, I would imagine, uh, once your study is, is at a point where you could deploy them to have uh, enough uh, talented marketers and engineers that this this potentially sounds like something uh, that could really have a great effect even on the national level. Do you anticipate it going that far, or is this more of a, a, an isolated tool that you would anticipate being used on campus? No, I think the goal really is that we would go as far as we can. Um, we anticipate that this would be a very useful tool, not only in these high density housing situations, but also kind of across the board when deciding when people should be going out into the workforce and when people really should be um, staying home, um, when people are likely to be getting sicker or when people are likely not to need um, critical resources. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that this tool can be really powerful for. So my hope is that it, our local test um, cases will really just be an example of how this can be used on a broader scale. So knowing that we have such, such uh, limited capacity for testing right now, um, mm -hmm. what hurdles would you imagine are in place for the system once it's deployed to be able to actually deliver a, a, a test to someone's doors as a closed loop system, uh, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so I think one of the benefits of this is that we can do testing more intelligently. And so, you know, I think we're in a situation where tests are in greater supply than they were previously during this outbreak. Um, but of course, we don't have enough tests that we can test everyone every day or, you know, even every hour of every day. So if we test somebody today and then they go and get infected tomorrow, that would be very challenging to detect. And so I think that the benefit of having this sort of screening tool is that you end up testing the people who are most likely to be sick. And that means that you're not wasting tests on randomly testing people who are unlikely to be sick um, in trying to detect cases. Now, there are other reasons for doing random testing, um, but in this particular case, when the goal is to um, capture cases, then you want to be testing intelligently for those cases. So the, the uh, usage, uh, eventual usage and deployment of this system might actually save tests. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds, exactly. that sounds uh, really wonderful. And I, I certainly uh, you know, hope and, and wish you the best uh, with this research. Um, do you want to plug the, the website if you uh, are still looking for people to enroll? 
Ah, absolutely. That would be great. Um, our website is coveidentify.org. It's C-O-V-I-D-E-N-T-I-F-Y.org. Um, and we're absolutely still looking for people to enroll. Um, and if there are any questions, our study team is pretty responsive on email. So you can reach us at coveidentify at duke.edu. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and uh, good luck with uh, with the study. And uh, I really hope that uh, we see it successful as, as soon as as soon as you're ready to roll out those uh, tests. I'll be the first in line or the, the notifications, I should say. I'll be the first in line. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Thank you, thank Dr. You Dr. So Dunn. Much. Enjoy the rest of your day. If you want to learn more about Dr. Dunn's study, visit covidentify.covid19.duke.edu. We'll also put a link in the show notes for this episode. You can sign up for free for their study or just learn more about what they're doing. Finding Health is a production of the Renee C. Frink Society, a 501c3 organization. It's executive produced by me, Brandon Stewart. Producing help this season from Mark Reese and researching help this season from Megan Crutchfield, MPH, and Lindsay Lau. If you want to learn more about our show or support us, visit us online at reneecfrink.org or tweet at us at finding underscore podcast. Stay safe and healthy, and don't forget to wash your hands. Wash your hands.